Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, if you don't have a Bible, you could look at the hardcover Bible. It's the black hardcover in the pew in front of you. And if you turn to page 472, you'll find Psalm 1. If you're taking notes, there is two pages of blank sheets in your bulletin that you might want to use to take notes. We're going to study Psalm 1 this week. Next week, we're in Psalm, chap- Psalm 2, Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2 next week. And then after that, so we're just taking a two-psalm break before we jump into our next series, which is going to be the book of 2 Peter. So starting in two weeks, we will be in the book of 2 Peter. But we're just going to study two psalms in between. We'll, we'll hit a few psalms in between series now just because it's a long book. And we'll just kind of start chipping away at it. All right? So Psalm 1. Hear the words of the living God. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, the Lord Yahweh's instruction, and he meditates on it, Day and night, he is like a tree planted by flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we get to not only delight in your word, but to read your word publicly and now meditate on it corporately as a church family. We realize that we don't deserve this privilege. We've been praying about brothers and sisters across the world who are in closed countries who don't have the freedom to do what we're doing here. And so as we even pray for their flourishing ministry, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your spirit is saying and showing the church. We pray that you would soften our hearts to your word, incline our hearts, and give us a desire for your word. Some of us desire video games or friendship or a conversation or another hour of work or sleep or exercise or whatever, Lord. We just pray that you would give us an overwhelming desire, an overwhelming desire for your word and not for merely earthly gain. So shape our hearts. May your spirit prompt us and draw us to you. And may we see, see wonderful things in your word. Change us, we pray, forever because of this holy moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do you ever get envious of other people? Do you ever get envious thinking about your own past and significant decisions that could have been made a different direction and how your life would have turned out differently if it went left instead of right or right instead of left? If you could just change that one thing in your life, what would that be? It probably changes from time to time, but what is that one thing right now? If you could just change that one thing in your life, what would it be? And if you, if you could get that change, then, then you'd really be happy because that would be the key, right? Then you would really prosper in life. You'd really take off at that point. You know, there was, for me personally, there was a situation like that in my life um, back in, I think, 2009, a situation opportunity there in the past um, with a church and, and potentially being part of a, pastoring a church. And I always, not always, but I sometimes wonder what it would be like if life went in that direction instead of a different direction. There's a few ministry forks in the road for my own life. And I wonder, what, what would have happened? And sometimes I envy, oh, Lord, why didn't you do this, you know? Um, why? Because we want to prosper. Even as Christians, we want to prosper. And we all have regrets, 
And we all, we all have obstacles to our prosperity. We want to prosper, but we have regrets of the past. We look forward and we have obstacles even currently towards our prosperity. And sometimes we're the ones who are creating those obstacles, aren't we? <laughs> With the decisions we're making in our own lives. And so what we ask is what everyone asks is, can we truly be happy? I mean, is it possible to actually get to a state of prosperity, of true, deep happiness and contentment? Can we truly prosper? God gives us Psalm 1, this psalm, because the answer, God's answer is yes. Yes, you can truly pr- prosper. It, it says in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 3, whatever he does, he what? He prospers. Whatever he does, he prospers. So does, can, can we actually prosper? The answer is yes. But it takes supernatural grace. It takes God's grace to change us and transform us because not only do we need our circumstances to change, it's often our heart that needs to change to recognize what true prosperity is even in the process. And so Psalm 1 is a gift of God to you for your true prosperity, which might not be your idea of prosperity at this moment. So here's the main goal. I think if you read Psalm 1, one of the things, maybe, maybe the main driving force that God wants you to walk away with after reading a psalm like this is pursue your prosperity for true happiness or pursue prosperity for true happiness. Pursue prosperity for true happiness because it says how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. So this is about happiness. This is about whatever he does, he prospers. So pursue this prosperity for true happiness. And how do you do that? How do you pursue true prosperity? There's two ways here, or two, two um, ideas, but I'm, and then there's a third one, which is the reason for it, but I'm going to make the third one another way, but I'll explain the reason then. So here it is. You do it by three things, profiling, pinpointing, and praising. Three Ps there. That might be easy today. Profiling, pinpointing, and praising. So profile prosperity. Pinpoint pretending and pretenders. Pretend prosperity. So pinpoint pretending, and then... Praise, praise the pursuer. And we'll get to that when we get to verse six. Okay, so point one, profile prosperity, that's verses one through three. And then pinpointing, that's verses four and five, and praising is verse six. So let's look at number one, profiling. If you want to pursue true happiness, you do it by profiling prosperity because what Psalm one, verses one through three give us is a profile of prosperity. So let's look at these ideas here. And I have a few ideas here from these three verses on what prosperity looks like. Look at chapter 1, verse 1, or Psalm 1, verse 1. How happy is the one who does not... So, so there's happiness. What is the happy person like? He doesn't do what? He doesn't walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. So what does that mean? What's that description? He doesn't... He doesn't walk in the, in the counsel or the advice of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the pathway. That's like he doesn't walk in the shoes or he doesn't stand in the shoes of, of, of sinners and he doesn't sit in the company of mockers. So you got wicked, sinners, mockers. Three ways of talking about what we'd say the godless or those who are apart from God. Or you could say they're part of the world. So if this person is avoiding the, their advice, if he's avoiding walking or standing in their shoes, and if he's avoiding sitting in their company, what is he doing? He's avoiding worldliness. So, so one of the profiles of prosperity, the person who prospers, is that he avoids worldly influences. Do you avoid worldly influences? The advice of the wicked, the pathway with sinners, the company of mockers? What is worldliness? Now, we have to clarify this in a church because some Christians and some churches talk about worldliness as activities, like don't dance or don't go to the movies. That would be like in the 40s and 50s, perhaps in churches. Today it would be like, don't listen to this kind of music or don't, you know, and it's worldliness is doing an activity. Don't drink, for example, don't drink alcohol. And that would be worldliness just by definition. That's not what the Bible says when it talks about avoiding worldliness. What is worldliness? David Wells, still to to my reading, my limited reading, has the best definition of worldliness. He says, worldliness is the mindset that pushes you to make righteousness seem strange and sin seem normal. 
That's what worldliness is. It's the mindset that's pressing you to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. And that's changing from culture to culture. It's not worldliness all around the world. So in our culture, in the West, what seems normal? You could say, you know, um, abortion might seem normal or racism might seem normal in the West or, um, um, you know, gay marriage, quote unquote, might seem normal here. But if you go to a Muslim country in the Middle East, does the LGBT movement have any, does that seem normal in a Muslim country? No. But to them, what's normal is maybe um, the way they treat women and not, not equal with men in, in terms of dignity. That's normal there. And it would be strange to treat them equal in dignity. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like, so worldliness is not one universal. Worldliness in different cultures and communities, it changes, but the, the, the demonic agenda stays the same. Sin seeming normal and righteousness seeming strange. It tries to flip things. It's like a carnival mirror to get you to distorted in your view and perspective of what you see in the world. And so the, the man who prospers, the woman who prospers, avoids these influences. They might hear it, but they don't, they're, not, they're not taken over by that advice. They don't walk in that pathway, and they don't sit in that company. And you might even see here a loose progression. Walk, stand, sit. Like, you know, so some people might preach like, you're, you're, you're walking in this way, and then you kind of stand, you get more comfortable, and then you actually sit there. And that, there might be some loose progression there. Um, but it's not only a walk, stand, sit here in verse 1. That what is he rejecting specifically? Look at verse 1 again. First, he, he does not walk in the advice of the wicked. So he rejects their advice. And then in the next phrase, he does not stand in the pathway of sinners. And if it's the pathway, it's like not standing in their shoes. He rejects their actions. He doesn't act the way they act. So he doesn't think, he doesn't take their advice. He doesn't act the way they act. And lastly, he rejects their company, sitting in, a, in the company of mockers. So he also rejects their attitudes. Their advice, their actions, and their attitudes. He rejects their mindset, their way of thinking, the pathway, the mazes that the world will put you in. Go this way and go that way, and if you do this, you'll prosper in your life. He rejects those, and he rejects the mingling of those who ignore God. He avoids worldly influences. Do you avoid worldly influences? Do you discern when the world is trying to influence you? Don't be scared of the world. I got five kids. I'm not trying to raise them to be scared of the world. I want them to think. I want them to engage the world. I want them to love their neighbors and know what's going on in the world and love them well with truth and thoughtfulness and true love because even the world will distort what normal love is and what strange love is, right? How does God define what true love is? Worldliness will try to distort it. So when we say avoiding worldly influences, we're not talking about being scared of them. We're talking about seeing through them and not being influenced by them. Okay, that's number one, in, in, pursue, in profiling prosperity. But look at verse two, because he moves on. Not only does he reject worldly influences, or not only is he not influenced by worldly thinking, in verse two, instead, here's the contrast, his delight is in what? In the Lord's instruction. And he meditates on the Lord's instruction day and night. I love this word. So, so secondly here, he delights in Yahweh's instruction. Yahweh, there's the word for Lord. Yahweh is God's covenant name. What does it mean that he delights? Is Bible reading for him, thinking about God's word, is it merely duty for him? Is it a drudgery for him? No, it's not a drudgery. It's a delight. It's a delight. And that's what happens when you're prospering. You delight in God's word. I remember, and kids, you might, want to rel- you might relate to this now. When I was, uh, I grew up in church, you know, 11 12, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. 11 and 12, and maybe even 13, I was bored out of my mind in church. It, was, it seemed like it took forever. And then something broke where all of a sudden everything started to make sense and I actually loved listening to what was being read. And I loved thinking about the singing. And then I loved actually thinking about the, what the preacher was saying. And something changed. There, was, there, there wasn't a delight before. It was just a drudgery. And something happened, in just, and I think part of it's also just social and mental maturity as well, just developing, but where it actually started to make sense to me and I actually liked being there all of a sudden. And it was a delight to be there. It's not merely duty. It's also or primarily delight. So this man who prospers, this woman who prospers, delights in God's instruction. What do you delight in? What have you been delighting in lately? What do you look forward to? When, when you are in line and you have three minutes of free time, you're in a drive-thru and you're going to order food and you have a few minutes of free time, 
what does your mind run to? What do you fill your empty, your empty moments of thinking with? That's what you delight in. That's what dominates your thinking. That's what's influencing you. And so this man, this woman, delights in the Lord's instruction. Listen to Psalm 19.10, where it compares compares God's word to other things that we might like. Psalm 19.10 says this. So it talks about God's word, and it says about God's word, Psalm 19.10, God's word, these words are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey, dripping from a honeycomb. So the word is more valuable than gold. It's more valuable than food. Here's this, and I love thinking about that verse often because it just so easily exposes how my heart gets distorted and, and gets messed up. So if I said, you know, um, if you just miss uh, six months of church and six months of Bible, so just cut out the Bible for six months of your life, I'll give you a million dollars. How many Christians would take that? It's scary to think about that question because a lot of Christians would. That's just six months. I just don't have to read my Bible for six months and don't get any Bible intake. No one speaks any of God's word to me for six months and then I get a million dollars. I'll take that. The psalmist doesn't. The word of God is more desirable than gold, than much fine gold. What about free food for a year? All the food you want, all you can eat buffets, you know, vouchers for every, every kind of meal and, and cooks, access to whoever you want for food for a whole year. But you just don't get the Bible for that year. No Bible for the whole year. No Jesus, no, no words spoken to you, no truth spoken to you. If you're not a Christian, of course I understand how many people would take it, but it's scary how many Christians would take it if they're honest in their heart of hearts because we just don't delight in the word the way we ought to be delighting in the word. But the Bible says if you're gonna truly prosper, where's your delight? In whose instructions? In the Lord's instructions. And we wonder why we don't prosper. Aren't there people who have millions and millions of dollars but feel miserable and are not prospering? Or have all the food that they want and are not prospering? See, it's an illusion what prosperity is. It's not immediately obvious because of worldliness. And so the delight here is in God's word. Our delight in God's word drives us to to an action. What's the action in verse two? His delight is in the Lord's instruction and he what? meditates on it day and night. Because he loves it, he thinks about it. Because he loves it, he meditates on it. The word meditate here, there's a few different ways of translating it used in different contexts. It, it, the, one of the translations is growl. He growls. Like, what, what, what does that have to do with growl? And here's why, because it's actually a verbal thing. It's reading in an undertone or pondering by talking to oneself or muttering words to yourself. Now remember, we have Bibles. Back in the psalmist days, and all the way actually until the printing press, people didn't have Bibles in their backpack wherever they go or Bibles on their phone, right? King David wasn't walking around with a smartphone, just looking at the Bible whenever he wants. What did they have to do? They heard God's word read and then they muttered it for the rest of the week. What did, what did the reader say again? Oh, the Lord's instruction, delighting in God's instruction. So like wherever they'd be going, they're cleaning, they're, you know, and they're walking along the way and they're just muttering God's word. They're thinking about God's word and they keep saying it. And, and so, you know, somebody's walking, he's like, is he talking to himself? He is talking to himself. Hey, she's reciting God's word. He's, he's thinking about, what, what did the preacher say again? Oh, he talked about delighting God's word, avoiding the advice. What was it advice, actions, and attitude? Okay, and so like, but the guy is muttering God's words. What is he doing? He's meditating on it. He's thinking it over again and again. He's recalling it back to his mind. It's not just a Sunday thing for a few minutes, and then he's out, and it's in one ear and out the other. No, he's thinking about it and reflecting on it. So if you're going to meditate and mutter God's word, if you're gonna read in an undertone or ponder by talking to yourself, how do you meditate on God's word? Here are three simple steps to meditate on God's word. And I know it seems obvious, but I'll just break it down. To meditate on God's word, first of all, you need to take God's word in. So take in scripture. That could be through reading or hearing. Reading or hearing, you gotta take scripture in. So you're taking scripture in as you sit here. Take scripture in step one. Step two, think about it and let it bounce around in your head. Don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. When you take it in, don't stop thinking about it. You know, put it on your phone or put an alarm, you know, tomorrow night or every night before I go to sleep, I'm gonna go back and remember what was read to me on Sunday. And I'm gonna think about it. So let it bounce around in your head. And then third, so you took it in, you're letting it bounce around. And then number three, take it with you and think about it throughout your day 
to the point where you see how God wants you to use it in your life or use it in your relationships or use it in your situations. So what would they mutter to themselves if they're thinking about the Lord's instruction? Again, it says, his delight is in Yahweh's instruction. Now, remember, Psalm 1 is written before the New Testament. It was probably written at the end of the Psalms, even though it's the first Psalm because it's getting you ready to praise God in the rest of the Psalms. But this is before the New Testament. So if you just had the Old Testament, what would you be meditating on? Let me give you, uh, let's see, four levels of meditation, okay? Here are four levels of meditating on the Bible, and it goes from um, the broadest to the most focused, okay? Oh, that might not be true. Just, I guess, maybe not broadest, okay? Number, number one would be think about the text. Think about the actual words you're reading, okay? So if you're gonna meditate on scripture, when you read a passage, keep thinking about that actual passage, that's number one. That's the first level. Read the words of the text but then, and the goal of the text. What's that goal of that text? But secondly, think about the story of the Bible and how it, that, that text fits into the story or how that text reminds you of the whole story. So think about the whole story of the Bible now, okay? Now, when I'm talking about the story, before the Old Testament was, let me just tell you the Old Testament story briefly here, and you can see that the whole story of the Bible is here. So what is it? Number one, uh, creation. So if you're thinking about the story of the Bible, God created the world, and then what happened? Then God cursed the world in their fall and in their sin, and then after God cursed us in our sin, he promised that he would send someone to crush the serpent's head, right? And then he, then he gave a covenant to Abraham that he would bless the cursed people. And then in Genesis 49, God promised that from Abraham's great-grandson Judah would come a king. And then God made us a nation, and he took us out of Egypt by the Passover and through the Red Sea. And then he made a law covenant with us through Moses, and we became his people and his holy nation. And then as we became his holy nation, God brought us into the land. And then when we were in the land, we actually got a king, and he set up a kingdom. And then we ruined the kingdom because we sinned, and so God kicked us out of the land. But then God promised that even when he kicked us out of the land, that one day he would bring us back in the land, and just like God lived with his people in Eden, God would live with his people in the new land. That's the story of the Old Testament. I just gave you the whole Old Testament right there. Okay, so creation, curse, covenant with Abraham, covenant with God's people, into the land, king, kicked out of the land, promised that they would come back in the land. That's the Old Testament. So when you're reading the Bible, does that story define your story? What are you doing this week? What's the story of your week coming up? What's the story of last week for you? And does that fit into this bigger story of what God's doing in the world? When you're meditating on scripture, you're thinking about the story of the Bible, because it's the true story of the world. So you have text, you have story, and then third, you have the gospel. When you think about the Bible and you're meditating on scripture, you think about the words, you think about the story, then think about the gospel, that God saves sinners through his promised sacrifice, through his promised Messiah, and that would be Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And then the fourth one, fourth thing to think about when you're meditating on scripture is God himself or God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if you're gonna meditate on scripture, think about God himself. Think about Jesus, okay? So brothers and sisters, if you're going to be a prosperous person who meditates on scripture, here's what I'm telling you to do. Think about the words you're reading. Think about the story of the Bible. Think about the gospel that saves you. And then fourthly, think about God himself. Think about Jesus Christ himself. The prosperous woman meditates on God's words. Those are four levels of thinking on God's instruction, okay? When was the last time you read a Bible and you were so confused by it that you actually looked for an answer from somebody else? That should not be abnormal in our church. We should be asking Bible questions of each other all the time because we love God's Word, right? We're meditating on God's Word. Is this always clear? Is there anything, is there, are there ever confusing things in this book? Are there a lot of confusing things in this book? I have tons of questions when I read the Bible. And so let us be a people that actually thinks about the Bible to the point that we actually have a question and we actually care about the question enough that we're actually looking for an answer. Sometimes we don't look for an answer because we just don't care. We don't care about the answer. Oh, that's confusing, huh? And then we just move on. But if you delight in the word, then you want to know what it means. And so let us think about the text to the point of asking a question about the text and searching for an actual answer to the text. And when does he meditate in verse two? He delights in Yahweh's instruction and he meditates on it when? Day and night. So if, he's, if it's not nighttime, it's daytime. If it's not daytime, it's nighttime. So when is he meditating on scripture? All the time. 
throughout the day, day and night, all the time, and that will affect your speech. So Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9, this used to sound crazy to me, but it's not crazy if you delight in God's word like this psalmist does. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. These words that I'm giving you today are to be on your heart. Repeat them to your children. When am I supposed to talk about it with my kids? Here's what the Bible says. Talk about it when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your head and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on the city gates. So when should you be talking about the Bible in your household with your wife and husband or family members, household members and kids and adults? When should you be talking about God's word? When? All the time. When you sit down, when you rise up. And so that, that's natural when you delight in God's word because you start to see that it applies to everyone and everything. There's never a time where the Bible doesn't apply. But we just might not think that the Bible's not applying because we're not meditating on God's word regularly. So to be constantly meditating on scripture, if you're going to constantly meditate on scripture, brother and sister, you have to break through a barrier. There's a barrier in your lives, and here's the barrier. There's a mental lifestyle barrier that we have. In this mental lifestyle barrier, we divide the secular and the sacred, the personal and the communal. Some things have to do with our church family, some things don't. Some things have to do with God, some things don't. Is that true? No. Everything has to do with God. Everything has to do with your church. We were talking, I was talking to the, uh, some of the church members earlier this week, and we are talking about fighting lust. And I said, your fight with lust affects the church. It affects all 88 other members of this church. It's not just your personal battle. It is your personal battle. It is personal. But don't act like it doesn't affect the people next to you who you're sitting with on Sunday. Everything you do affects all of us in this church family. Do you understand that? There is no divide. There is no barrier. You don't have a work life and a church life and a family life and a, a hobby life. You don't have that. You have a life. You have one life. And it's all under God. And it all affects all the people you know all the time. Even just because you don't sense the effect it has on other people doesn't mean it doesn't affect them. It affects the way you relate to them. So you come to church a little bit more guarded. You have, your, you have your, a few lies or a few deflections you already have set up in case people ask you about certain things in your life to deflect it so you don't have to get into certain parts of your life. Does that not affect the way you edify each other? Does that not affect who they're going to talk to next? Does it not affect who they're going to talk to at work this week and share the gospel with? It affects everyone. There is no break. There is no breaks. There are no barriers and compartments in your life. It's either all God or not. God says, love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. It's all the time. And so if you're going to meditate on Scripture daily, you have to see that there are no compartments in your life that are God-free. There are no compartments in your life that are Bible-free. There is no Bible-free zone in your life. There is no God-free relationship in your life. It always has to do with God all the time. There's no God-free activity in your life, ever. And if you get that, then you understand why meditating on Scripture all the time matters because it has to do with everything you do. So the call is to Bible-loving and Bible-mulling. What does that mean by mulling? Mull means to think about deeply and at length, to mull it over, to meditate on it. So are you a Bible-loving Christian, and are you a Bible-mulling Christian, thinking about it deeply? These, if you do this, you're basically doing what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, which says, therefore, brothers and sisters, you know this, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your acceptable service, or this is your true worship. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. See, when you are thinking about God all the time in his word and it's re renewing your mind, you start to love what God loves. You start, you start to hate what God hates. You start to be impressed with what God's impressed by. You start to not be impressed by what God is not impressed by. So that million dollars I was talking about earlier, that's not impressive to you anymore. Not that you can't use it for God's glory, but you understand that money's a tool and not a God. And that when money becomes your God, it's a terrible master, is it not? Is it not? And food is a wonderful gift from God. You can worship God over some really good food, right? But when food becomes your master, is that not a terrible master that will kill you? 
And so when, you, when, you, when God renews your mind, you start to see the world the way he sees it. You get to enjoy what he enjoys the way he wants you to enjoy it and not let any of these good gifts become bad gods in your life. But it takes renewal of the mind to do that. And that's what happens when you meditate on Scripture. So this prosperous person, he rejects the mindset, he rejects the mazes, he rejects the mingling of those who ignore Jesus. He delights in Scripture. He meditates on it constantly. And he becomes, look at the next verse, verse 3, he becomes like a flourishing tree. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. So he's beside water. He has a constant flow of water and resourcing and replenishment. I wish I had a flowing stream of water in my backyard. We uh, just took out a tree, and now all the neighbors can see everything that happens in our house because we didn't water it, and so the roots came up and started uprooting our neighbor's wall. And so that wasn't a flourishing tree. It looked like it on, on the top, but it wasn't a flourishing tree. But this tree... You, if you're meditating on God's word, you have that steady flow of water, so you're a healthy, strong tree with strong roots. You bear fruit in your life in season, and your leaves don't get brittle. They don't wither. Your, your leaves don't decay. You bear fruit in your season. You're constantly in flowing streams, and your leaves don't wither. What does that sound like? If you, if you love your Bible and you know anything about the story of the Bible, a tree Streams of water, fruit in its season, non-withering leaves. that sound like anything? Heaven? Okay. In Revelation 22, it, t- it does talk about the, the what? The tree of what? The tree of life. The tree of life, it says it's on either side of the river, and it's bearing its 12 kinds of fruit in its season, and those leaves don't wither. Now, that's not the first time you see the tree of life in Revelation 22. That's the end of the Bible. Where's the first time you see the tree of life? Where? In the Garden of Eden. And what is it next to? Or what's in the Garden of Eden? What's flowing through the Garden of Eden? Rivers. And there's a tree of life. And if you eat from that tree of life, you live forever. The psalmist is saying that the happy person sort of becomes sort of like the tree of life. He becomes... She becomes a source of eternal life for other people. They meditate on Scripture so much that they bear fruit with their words and with their actions. And when people come to, to, to relate to them and become a friend of them and have actions with them, they actually get God's life through other people. This is what a church member is. This is what you are, 89 members of Bethany Baptist Church. You're trees of life in a sense. That you meditate on Scripture that when people talk to you and people interact with you and they share a life with you, They get the life of God flowing through you and the fruit that you bear in your life because you meditate on Scripture day and night. Now, why why would you be fruitful? How could you be fruitful? Why would you be fruitful? I mean, we're not exactly this infallible tree of life. Why would we be trees of life? The psalmist here is talking about this happy person who's the tree of life. Who is the ultimate tree of life or who is the ultimate fruit bearer? In history, Jesus, right? He said, I am the what? I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and my words, what? Abide in you, ask whatever you wish and you'll bear much fruit. Because Jesus is the tree of life. He's the vine, right? Jesus is the vine. It's about him. It's about his words. It's about him. And when you meditate on him and you, you park next to Jesus and Jesus is on your mind and on your lips and in your relationships all the time, he is the vine. You're connected to the tree of life, to this vine of life, and all of a sudden you flow to bear fruit because Jesus is all over your life in words. And when people get you, they get Jesus. And when they get Jesus, they get life. And that's the tree of life in the Garden of Eden that we were cut off from until Christ came to bring that life. And now churches are little trees of life all over the world. And members are little trees of life that bear fruit for his glory. Here would be the individual Israelite. Israel is called the vine in, in Psalm 80, if you want to look at that later. You become so much a tree of life, of fruit, then to verse 3, that whatever you do, you what? Whatever you do, you prosper. Does that sound too good to be true? I mean, it's, it's not like most things you do, you'll prosper. It says what? 
whatever, not most things, not some things, then you'll prosper. But whatever this person does, he prospers. Imagine that. Everything you do, you prosper. Is that true? I mean, is this hyperbole just kind of like outlandish and, and it's just an overstatement to make a point? Does this sound like prosperity gospel, false teaching? The prosperity gospel, if you watch TV and watch preachers on TV, I generally don't recommend that. But if you do, um, most of them are prosperity gospel preachers that just say, if you give us money or if you do these five things, then you'll, you'll be prosperous and you'll be healed and, and you'll get life. That's not what the Bible teaches. It does talk about eternal life, but there's brokenness and death in this world, is there not? You can't, you can't give enough money to a church to, to stop death. That's just not going to happen. So, so does this sound too good to be true? That whatever he does, he prospers? I think this means what it says. That whatever you do, everything you do, prospers. How does that, how does that work? I'm talking about pursuing prosperity. Well, Psalm 37, 14 says this. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the what? The desires of your heart. Let me say that again. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Or to use James's words in James 1, 2 to 4, consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter various trials, because the testing of your faith produces endurance. But let endurance have its perfect work that, you work that you might be mature and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, the trials in your life are for your endurance. And when you get endurance, you get maturity. And when you get maturity, you get more of who? When you're more spiritually mature, who do you get to enjoy more? God himself, Jesus Christ. And is that not prosperity? What is prosperity? Having more of who? Christ, right? Enjoying Christ. Uh, John talked about experiencing Jesus when he opened up our service. Experiencing Jesus is what I want when I interact with my church. Experiencing Jesus is what I want in my family. Experience Jesus, experiencing Jesus is what I want on the sick bed. Experiencing Jesus is what I want on my deathbed. Experiencing Jesus is what I want when I'm bereaved and I'm crying my heart out and my eyes out over the loss of loved ones. I need Jesus. And if I have Jesus, take everything else, right? I will prosper if you give me Jesus. Even on my dying, on my deathbed, when I'm dying, I will prosper if I have Jesus. Take away Jesus, I'm done. But if you give me Jesus, I'll prosper. And that's why this man who meditates, whatever he does, he prospers. Because even in trials, he gets Jesus. He has Jesus. And so he, he can't help but prosper. Even, can I even say this? Even when he sins. When he sins, he dishonors Jesus though. I'm not, is sin a good thing? I'm not saying sin is a good thing. Sin is sin. But how, how, how sweet has the Lord been when you have come to God in repentance and tasted his forgiveness? Isn't that sweet? Doesn't it turn out for your prosperity? Even your fall turns out for your prosperity? Peter denied Christ three times and then was restored so sweetly by the Lord Jesus and became a rock, literally, or not literally, but you know, Jesus even called him the rock. He became the rock for the church to be built on. This failure of a man who denied Christ three times, that failure became the means of his humility to become the rock for the church as the church went forward. Whatever he does prospers. Even denying Christ three times. Not because it's good in and of itself, but because God will make it prosper for you. Because he'll give you more of him. It's not an overstatement to say whatever he does prospers. That's not hyperbole. That's reality for this man and woman who meditates on scripture day and night. You can't lose. You can't lose. Or let me use more familiar words. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, to those who delight in the Lord's instruction and meditate on day and night, to those who don't walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. All things work together for good. Whatever he does prospers. She can't help but prosper. Is this true happiness? It is true happiness if you love God. Now, this is why I said it takes supernatural grace. Because if you don't love Jesus, if you don't love God, you can't have prosperity. Okay, I, I want all the good stuff except for God. Well, guess what? You'll never have prosperity. Because everything you love about this world that's good is only good because it's a reflection and connected to who? 
to God. It's only good because of God. And you take God out, you're, taking, you're cutting the, the flower at the root. And it might, it might last for a few days, but eventually that flower is going to wither. So people try to take God's good gifts apart from God. And do they prosper? They might prosper for 30 years. They might prosper for 50 years. They might be a billionaire in this world five times over. But in the end, will they prosper? That's the question. Is this true prosperity? Is this true happiness? So let me, close, let me, let me say an application here before we go on to the, the second half of this um, psalm. Church family, when God is our treasure, we, if God is our treasure, then we must seek to enjoy God and not merely the gifts of God. God is the greatest gift. So our church, we must saturate our gatherings with scripture to meditate on God's word, that we might meditate on Christ, that we might love and enjoy Christ more. Does Bethany Baptist Church delight in God's word? I think we do in many ways, but God's calling us to excel still more. If you're not a Christian... Let me ask you a very simple question. Have you read the Bible before? I would encourage you if you're not a Christian. I, I, I spoke to someone even this past week who um, said she wasn't a Christian. And she said, you know what? I've never read the Bible before. And I said, I'd encourage you to read the Bible. I would say read the Bible and ask whatever questions you have. Try to take in God's word and understand it. At least if you're not a Christian and you don't want to become a Christian, I would say here's my challenge to the non-Christians here. At least understand enough of the Bible to know the message of the Bible that you're rejecting. It's one thing to reject the Bible's message. It's another thing to be ignorant about what you're rejecting. I mean, let's just take just bare population facts. And, and if you want to be an educated person in the world today, it, you'd be a fool to ignore Christianity. Because it's just, just the factor that it is in the world, right? I mean, if two billion people are professing to follow Jesus Christ in the Roman Catholic church, I don't think it's a true church, but Roman Catholic church and in the Eastern Orthodox church and in the Protestant evangelical churches, if that's 2 billion people out of 7.5 billion people, well, that's a lot of people. And if it's affected our very calendar that 2019 is dated to the birth of Jesus, supposedly, even though it's like four or five years off, if that's, if, I mean, if, if, that, if it's had that much impact culturally and historically, if you're not a Christian, just to be educated, you'd at least do well to know the message of Christianity that you're rejecting. So I'd encourage you to read your Bible and find out what, the, what, what Christianity is about. Children, if you're going to prosper, you're never too young to start reading the Bible. Parents, you're never too, your kids are never too young for you to start reading the Bible to them. Chris and Bethany should be reading the Bible to Shiloh. When I visited Shiloh, she was not 24 hours old yet, and I read her Psalm 139. She needs to hear God's word. Because if she's going to delight in God's word and prosper, she needs God's word, doesn't she? Parents, if you wait till your kids are like five years old, then I'm going to start reading the Bible. You've done five years of not reading. You think you have the habit of reading just like that? You've built a five-year habit of not reading. So read now when they don't even understand. Because when they start understanding, guess what? You've always been reading. You'll just continue your pattern. If you're discouraged, oh, I don't study the Bible. And if I don't, really, I don't really want the Bible, ask God for help. Ask God to change your heart. If you're stubborn and you're just like, I just don't like the Bible, ask God to... For forgiveness, for belittling God's word is precious and ask him to give you a desire for his word. All right, that's the first and, and longest one as it typically is, right? So a profile, and that's half of it, profile prosperity. Secondly, and this is more of a mirror to it, pinpoint pretending, verses four and five. If you're going to prosper, if you're going to pursue prosperity, you not only need to um, profile prosperity, you need to pinpoint pretending. What I mean by pretending is fake prosperity, pretending prosperity, pretenders who, who pretend to prosper. That's those who are apart from God. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like what? Chaff that the wind blows away. So the wicked pretend to be happy. They pretend to be prosperous. They pretend to be delighting and flourishing and not withering. But their happiness is either a self-conscious lie, they put on a smile, but they're not really happy, or are some really, truly, like, honestly happy? Yeah. Are some genuinely happy? That they, at least they think they are? Yes. But they're still self, or they're still delusional. Either way, it's pretend happiness. Whether they're, they're, they're self-consciously lying, or whether they truly believe that this is true happiness. Either way, that's pretend happiness. That's pretend prosperity. Why? Why is that pretend prosperity? Well, let's look at it. Verse four. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like what? 
They're like chaff that the wind blows away. What does it mean like chaff? What is chaff? Chaff is in grasses like wheat, um, the ripe seed inside is surrounded by a thin, dry, thin, dry scaly bracts forming a dry husk around the grain. And once you remove the wheat from it, it's just a shell. You know, it's a, it's a shell that, that's holding in the wheat, and it's easily blown away. It's super light. It's worthless. You put that on the threshing floor, and the wind just blows it away. That's what the wicked are like. They're like chaff that the wind, that the wind blows away. What's the opposite of chaff in this, in this psalm? Look at the psalm again. What's the opposite of chaff? Chaff is blown away by the wind. What's the opposite of it? The what? The tree. Is this tree being blown away? No. Why? It's beside flowing streams, and it's bearing fruit, and its leaf doesn't wither. It's a non-dying tree. It's an infinitely, eternally healthy tree. Will it be blown away by the advice of the wicked or the pathway of sinners or the company of mockers? No, but will, will the wicked be blown away by the advice of the wicked? Yes. Will they, be, will they be blown away by the pathway of sinners? Yes. Will they be blown away by the company of mockers? Yes. They're like chaff. They have no roots. They got no strength. They have no discernment. They, they have no, no ability to withstand the hurricane of deceit and lies that this world blows on them. They have no chance. Without God's word, you have no chance at standing against the lies of this world. You're chaff. And you're just blown away with your billions of dollars. You could enjoy your billions of dollars for 30 years, but you're just blown away by the lie that money will provide happiness or whatever else is there. Let's look back at verse 4 because verse 4 has the wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like chaff. When it says like this, it's not just talking about not like the tree. They're also not like the one who delights in God's word. In other words, pretenders are indifferent to God's word. Pretenders who are not Christian and pretenders, get this, who are professing to be Christians. There are Christians who are pretenders. There are such things as fake Christians. Even in our own membership, there can be fake Christians. Now, I don't want you to guess who they are. I don't try to guess who they are. I assume that everyone's a true Christian. But I know from the Bible that I'd be naive to think that there aren't fake Christians in our church. I'm not trying to figure that out. I'll just keep preaching the word and keep calling people to repent. That's why we have church discipline in our church and accountability to, 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 to discern those people. But there are pretenders. And you know what pretenders do? They don't really love God's word. They're indifferent to God's word. They're bored by God's word. They're too busy for God's word. Pretenders are indifferent to God's word. They don't meditate on day and night. They don't delight in it. And then going back to verse one, they're not like verse one. In verse one, he avoids worldly influences. The pretenders are not avoiding worldly influences. They're standing in their pathway. They're walking with them. They're sitting in their company. So pretenders are influenced by the world. And like I told you earlier, earlier, there's not just one worldly way of thinking. There are several worldly ways of thinking, even in our culture here. So they don't have to be um, um, given into all the worldly ways of thinking. Satan has many ways of deceiving people, not just one. So he rejects the mindset of the Christian. He rejects the mission of the Christian. He rejects mingling with those who follow Jesus in the church family. Do you reject or receive the mindset that the Bible teaches? Do you reject or receive the mission that God gives? Do you reject or receive with joy the mingling in the company of Christians? The pretenders don't like any of that. They don't like the mindset. They don't like the mission. They don't like the mingling. Just get me in and get me out because I'm not delighting in God or his word. And so therefore, verse 6, pretenders don't truly prosper. Look at the very last phrase of verse 6. I'll come back earlier, but let's go to the very last phrase of verse 6. But the way of the wicked leads to what? Leads to ruin, leads to nowhere. It, it comes to nothing. The pretenders don't truly prosper. They come to nothing but ruin. They might succeed for a while, but in the end, they, ruin. they end up in ruin. No one in, in five million years, in five million years, when we're on the new earth, in five million years, no one will be studying Hitler. Or Julius Caesar. Or, now I'm not sure if these people are Christians, so I'm going to say living people as well. Or, just to use current political stuff, President Obama or President Trump. Or Apple technology. Or Michael Jackson's music. Or LeBron James, who's already in year 17. Or Elvis. No one will be devoting themselves to these types of things five million years from now. 
it comes to what? Nothing. In the end, it's ruined. But you know what we'll be talking about five million years from now? The Christian sister, Jesus says, who takes a cup of cold water in the name of Christ to another person because they love Jesus. That will be celebrated five million years from now. The way you talk and greet to each other after the service and you ask how you're doing and say, hey, can I pray for you? That will be celebrated five million years from now. The next presidential election, no one will care. Your conversation after this gathering with another Christian, that will echo into eternity. Don't be deceived by the advice of this world. They don't know what's significant. Do you see how distorted we are on what's truly significant? Our, 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 our mindset and our time frame is so small. Five million matter, years from now, what matters most is what we're doing with each other here, today. What we do with our non-Christian neighbor. How we try to gospelize them. That's all that matters five million years from now. Everything else leads to ruin. It comes to nothing. Don't be dazzled by the demonic design of this world that just seeks to put all these shiny things in front of you as if that's what life is about. It's not. And so we meditate on Scripture to see through that. We, don't, we dare not lose our kingdom perspective. And so therefore, what's going to happen to these wicked? If they reject God, they reject God's word, they don't see these things, if it leads to ruin in the end, look at verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Pretenders will not stand up in the final judgment. They won't stand up in court. They don't have a case. They're doomed. They're going to be condemned as guilty. All your pretending won't matter on the final judgment day before God. Why? Because God knows all of our thoughts. He knows all of our history. He knows all of our actions. No, not any one person in this room knows all that we've done. But God knows it all. And you can't, he can't, you know, he just sees through us, Right? And so on that final day, your pretending will come to nothing. You, you won't stand up in court. You won't be counted among God's people. In Matthew 25, 31 to 34, it talks about Jesus, and here's what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he'll say to those on his left, and that's no commentary on you over here. It's just my left, okay? He will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The way of the wicked leads to ruin they will not stand up in the judgment. They will be thrown into the eternal fire prepared for Satan and his angels. It's not worth it. In Revelation 20, verses 11 through 21, 8, you could read that for homework. It talks about the great white throne judgment where all of our lives will be laid bare before God on judgment day. And there will be a book of life and some names will be in the book of life, but others won't be in the book of life. And those who aren't in the book of life, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire forever. And those that are, and that's the cowards, the liars, and it goes on with the list there in Revelation 28. But the ones who conquer, the ones who hold fast to God's word, those who meditate on God's word day and night and cling to Christ all the way to the end, they will receive their reward in the new earth forever and ever and ever. If you're not a Christian, understand this. Judgment is coming. And because we are all sinners, including you, you won't make it in the judgment to come. You have no hope in the judgment to come on your own. God will burn and pour out his wrath on those apart from Christ forever and ever in hell. But here's the good news, so here's the message of Christianity. God made us, he's our creator. He created us to enjoy him, but we have sinned and rebelled against God. So God is not only your creator, he's also your judge. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death, eternal death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God will judge you in hell forever for your sins. But here's the good news. God is also, God is not only creator and judge, he is Christ. God became a man, Jesus Christ. And he lived the life we should have lived. He died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead so that everyone who repents from their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ will be forgiven, will be saved from the judgment to come because Jesus would have taken that judgment on himself on the cross for you. So if you're not a Christian, that's the message of Christianity. And Jesus is telling you today through my voice, he's calling you to turn from your sins and to turn from your religiosity and to turn from your own personal goodness and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation.
God is calling you to come to him even today. Church member, don't pretend to be a Christian. Be a real Christian. Where you're, confess your sins. Don't pretend you don't have sins. Confess your sins and get forgiveness. Let's repent together. Let's share together. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's grow together. Check your delight in God's word and God's ways. Do you really delight in God's word or is it coerced? Is it coming from within? Is there some, something deep within that really loves God's word or is it all from the outside? Because your church or your family or your friends are making you read God's word. Check yourself. The coming judgment day is, the day of judgment is coming, but for, the, for those who are saved, that's a day of salvation for us, right? It's a day of final salvation when we come to reign with Christ forever. So how do you pursue prosperity? Number one, by profiling prosper, prosperity, sorry. By profiling prosperity, number two, by pinpointing pretending, and number three, and this is really not a way, it's more of a, a reason, but it is a way. I'm going to turn, turn it into a way. Praise the pursuer. Look at verse 6. For the Lord. This is probably the, the I was going to say the goodest, the best news of the whole thing. Verse 6. What makes the difference? What's the ultimate difference between the pretender and the prosperous? What's the true difference at the core? Here's the true difference. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. So what's the difference? Why, why do these Christians prosper, even if they look like they're not prospering because they're in jail or they're dying, and these don't? Why? What's the ultimate difference? The Lord watches over their way, and the Lord ignores their way. He doesn't care about their way. And if God's not in their way, then their way leads to ruin. But for those who are in Christ, those who are following God according to His way, their way leads to prosperity, and they will, um, and they will stand in the community of the righteous. God cares about your way. God recognizes your way. Bible lovers and Bible mullers flourish because God chooses, chooses to watch over your path. That's why everything you do prospers. So Psalm 23, 6, you guys know the Lord is my shepherd, right? That Psalm, but what's the last verse of that Psalm? Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life? Did you know that only goodness is pursuing you if you're a Christian? All things work together for good. Whatever you do prospers. Only goodness will pursue you all the days of your life. Why? Because the Lord watches over your path. God knows you. God loves you. God turns your bad and evil and mistakes for his good. And God watches over your way. So that whatever you do, you prosper. But for the pretenders, he abandons pretenders to their own fleeting and futile way. So, pr so praise the pursuer. If you're going to pursue prosperity, praise the pursuer. Because as you pursue prosperity, guess what? Prosperity is pursuing you, right? As you pursue goodness, only goodness is pursuing you. As you pursue God, God pursued you first. We love because he first loved us. He loved you first. He pursued you first. He spoke to you first. God, the, the ultimate difference isn't you. You're not better than your non-Christian friends. God is the ultimate difference. He loves you. He chases you. He won't let you go because of Jesus Christ. Praise the one who pursued you. Stand in awe that God doesn't only pursue you individually. He pursues Bethany Baptist Church. Is God's favor on our church? Does God love our church? He does. God is pursuing our church family. And let's be honest, we're not always worthy of pursuit. But God pursues our church family. If you're not a Christian, will you choose God today? If you choose God today, it's because God's pursuing you first anyways. But will you respond to God's pursuit of you? So let me close. Let me close with a review. Pursue prosperity for true happiness. How? By profiling prosperity, by pinpointing pretending, and lastly, by praising the pursuer. Now, if we're honest with ourselves... Do we often profile prosperity and love it? Do we often love God's word and reject worldly influence? No, we don't always do that. Do we often pinpoint pretending and see through the world's lies? No, if we're honest, like the psalmist in Psalm 73, Asaph, he envied the world. Do you ever envy non-Christians? We do sometimes, right? When we, we don't pinpoint pretending, we actually love the pretending. We actually get duped by the pretending ourselves. And do we always praise the pursuer? Do, do we always recognize that God's pursuing us? Or have we sometimes been ungrateful 
and oblivious to the fact that God has not stopped pursuing you all the days of your life. Man, because of our failure, we're wicked, aren't we? Aren't we wicked and evil for not loving God's word and not praising the pursuer and being enamored by the pretending of this world? We deserve judgment. We don't deserve to stand in the assembly of the righteous. But Jesus, the true and ultimate psalmist, the true and ultimate happy man, the truly righteous one, he was treated like he was wicked. He was blown away by God's wrath like chaff, wasn't he? He was not allowed to stand up in judgment. He wasn't allowed to stand up in the judgment. Instead, he hung on the cross in judgment. He doesn't get to stand up approved by God. He hangs in the cross in judgment. And instead of being accepted by God, he's abandoned by God. Is he not on the cross? He's forsaken by, by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not in the community of the righteous. He's cut off from the community of the righteous. He's cut off from the land of the living. He was abandoned and forsaken by God. Why? For you. For us. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And that tree of death, that tree of judgment became the tree of life. It says in Galatians 3 that he was cursed on that tree. And that cursed tree became the blessed tree. It became the tree of life. So that, every, that became the tree of life so that everyone who abides in Christ and has his words, the crucified Lord's words abiding in you, you become a tree of life. And you bear fruit because he died on that tree to give you life. So we cling to that cross, the tree of life. The core difference, as I close here, the core difference is this. It's the difference between delighting and mocking. You either mock God's word by not believing it and doubting it, or you delight in God's word. So do you doubt God's word or do you delight in God's word? Do you mock God's word and hang out with those who mock God's word and and basically doubt God's word? Or do you hang out with those who delight God's word and let them influence you? The core difference is whether you delight in God's word or mock God's word. It's about your desire. Have you heard this before? I'm gonna add something to it from someone. You sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Let me add something to it in light of Psalm 1. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a desire, a delight. You reap a delight in God's word or in doubt in God's word. Sow an action, reap a delight. Sow your delights, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. It all begins with what you think. What are you feeding your mind? What are you delighting in? I call you, as we close, to, to just to pray Psalm 119.18. God, give me a heart that loves your word. So pray that God would give you a desire for his word and then read God's word this week. That's my challenge to you. Pray that God would give you a delight in his word and then read it this week. If you don't, you, you, if you don't ask God to incline your heart and read God's word, you will delight in your, your, your delight will dwindle in God's word. You'll push God to the side of your life and you'll live in meaninglessness. But if you delight in God's word and you read it, your happiness will grow in God. You'll see God more and more in your life and you'll bear fruit and prosper. If I got that past church that I wanted in 2009, I do wonder what would happen. But you know what? I'd have other regrets. I'd be like, oh, what if this happened in my life? Or what if that happened in my life? Because you know what? The key to prosperity is not changing that one thing in your past. That's not the key to change. That's not the key to prosperity. The key to prosperity is to delight yourself in God's word and let him change your delights so that whatever horrors, and brothers and sisters, you will go through horrors and nightmares in this life, will you not, in this broken world, so that through the pain and through the storm, God will be your delight and you will prosper even on your deathbed. When we see God and delight in his word, in whatever difficulties or challenges we have, we will know what it is truly like to live in God's joy, hope, and love. Let's pray. I'll give you a moment to pray and I'll close this.
Father, save us from doubting your word. Save us from filling our lives with all kinds of other delights that we don't even delight in your word. Change our hearts to, to desire you, to desire your word. For those who are not Christian, cause them to be born again by your Holy Spirit's power. For those of us who are Christian, fill us with your spirit that we might love your word and let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Cause us to see, Father, that in Christ, whatever we do prospers. And help us to pursue prosperity all the days of our life, knowing that truly only goodness and faithful love pursues us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in your house forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.